Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Fintech firms are currently facing a series of challenges stemming from a variety of factors, including dropping venture capital funding, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and the uncertain economic times with interest rates rising. Collaboration and partnerships within the fintech ecosystem and with traditional financial institutions have become more crucial as fintech firms reassess business models and try to build greater resilience. My guest in the Banking Transform podcast is Jeff Tyson, expert partner and global head of fintech at Bain & Company. Together, we try to unravel the complexities of this rapidly evolving sector and uncover how fintech is reshaping the way we think about money, payments, and financial services. As traditional financial institutions face unprecedented changes across all components of what banking means in the future, fintech firms have been rewriting the rules, driving innovation, and revolutionizing the way we interact with money. But the road has been rocky for fintech firms as of late. More than ever, it's important to uncover the opportunities, challenges, and groundbreaking transformations that lie ahead for the fintech sector. So, Jeff, before we begin, can you introduce yourself to our audience and share a little bit about your background? Very happy to, uh, Jim. I mean, first and foremost, thank you so much for uh, for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Yeah, and uh, big fan of of the podcast and what you guys do. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, to be joining you today. Um, I mean, yeah, just by way of introduction, so Jeff Tyson, a partner at Bain and Company, where I have the pleasure and privilege of leading our fintech practice globally, um, which effectively means that I get to do all the cool and exciting stuff that we do, you know, as an organization with incumbents, fintechs, yeah, and our investor clients. We, we can talk a bit more about that yeah, later on. Um, I've spent my whole career in financial services, so over 20 years in the industry now, have pretty much touched most parts of financial services by now. Started my career you know, as a private banker you know, back in the days, grew up in, in the Netherlands, so worked with some of the major Dutch banks, you know, moved to the UK 13 years ago now. You know, had the pleasure of you know, working with most of you know, the big UK banks you know, in, uh, in the past decade or so. Uh, ran the digital platform business for Lloyds Bank for a number of years. You know, ran payments innovation for RBS for a number of years. Um, I had the, uh, the pleasure of being on the founding team of a number of digital banks in different parts of the world, which was an incredibly exciting journey to start with a blank sheet of paper and now be able to point you know, to some of these things that are live in the market and are doing, and are doing really well, which makes me incredibly proud. Um, spent three years building and running the consulting business for a company called 11 Invest that I'm sure many of your listeners will be very, very familiar with. Yep. Uh, that was a fantastic time you know, to, have the, uh, to have the ability to work with some of the smartest brains in the industry. And then joined Bain uh, about two and a half years ago now. And that's been a fantastic journey as well to have the ability to work with some of the most amazing companies in the, in the industry. You know, <clears throat> we've crossed paths a couple of times in the last few months at, at different major events where just hundreds, literally hundreds and thousands of fintech firms are, are in presence. And what we've seen is a lot of transformation. A lot of things have happened, not just in the last few years, but really even the last few months. What are some of the most important trends and innovations that you've seen in the industry over the past, let's say, two years? Yes, it's a great question, Jim. I think it always makes me laugh, you know, when I speak to people who say I've spent the last twenty years in fintech, right? Because I think the reality is that if you look at the industry as a whole, we're still in the early innings. 
you know, and, and you know, you've been in this space for a long time. I've been in this space for for uh, you know for quite some time, but you know, definitely not twenty years. So I think it's fair to say that even if you look at you know the top twenty fintech players globally, the most established players in this space, they've really only been around for less than a decade. Right? And if you compare it to some of the largest financial institutions out there, who've been around for you know hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah we need to yeah we need to put all of this into you know, into perspective, and. Yeah, whenever you and I attend these conferences, yeah, it's always a matter of yeah, what what what's the latest buzzword? I think the reality is that you know, if you look at fintech today versus you know even a couple of years ago, you know, the industry really continues to transform, and it's not just you know, within this fintech bubble. But I think one of the effects you know, of um, you know this fintech disruption that we have witnessed in in recent years is the fact that it has really forced incumbents to up their game. Well, we've seen it in the US, you know, for example. We've seen it in various other parts of the world where you know incumbents yeah uh, can now no longer charge you know, overdraft fees or have you know, made a decision to you know, to change you know their their strategy on uh, on that front. But if you look at, I mean, uh, in our private equity business, for example, where you know, we're by far the dominant player, we've been involved in about 80% you know, of all the fintech deals globally in recent years. So we, we basically see everything that's going on. And if you take payments as an example, if you look at the top 10 fintech plays globally, you would probably classify many of them as payments. Now, I think despite yeah. all the innovations that we've seen and all the disruption that we've seen, we still have a long way to go. Right? And I think you know, the shift towards account-to-account payments and real-time payments in your name, I think is a really, really exciting one. But I think you know, it will probably take a couple of years before all of that really starts to come to you know, to uh, uh, to fruition. And even if you look at the neobanking space, I think last time I checked to Jim, you know, there were about 400 neobanks globally. Now the question is, to what extent do we really need 400 neobanks? And right. to what extent you know, have these organizations really managed to you know, disrupt the status quo? Because right? obviously in so many countries around the world, the landscape is still dominated by yeah, the big four or big five. Now that's slowly starting to change. But again, we need to give these organizations some time as well to really focus on product and revenue diversification and really, really challenge the dominant position that you know, these big four, big five organizations have had you know, for so many years. But I think the reality is that, you know, as I said, I think it is still relatively early days, despite all the investment that is, uh, uh, yeah, that, that the fintech sector has received in the past couple of years. But yeah. To what extent, if you look at your, uh, if you look at the sector today, yeah, are we providing a, a custom experience that is ten times better versus what an incumbent offers? Again, I think yeah, that we still have a bit of work to do in that space. But it, that's also the exciting thing. And again, if you look at the talent that exists in the fintech space, that is unbelievable. And I'm hundred percent convinced that yeah, if you look at the sector in five, ten years from now, it will again look very, very different compared to what we're seeing today. You know, it's interesting too. When I when I was in the Amsterdam, you were in the Amsterdam for Money Twenty Twenty. One thing that really caught me was how many names of firms on the floor who had spent a lot of money putting up displays. I didn't know who they were, or even what they did. Is fintech still somewhat a regional process where organizations that are in, let's say, the Netherlands or the UK are not necessarily impacting the fintech sector in the US or in Asia. Is it regional or is it, are there really some national players or interna international players? Sorry. I think I think it's a great question, Jim. I think the reality is that we've obviously seen, yeah, if you take the neobanking um, space as an example, we've obviously seen a fair few neobanks try to expand internationally with mixed 
your results. And I remember this myself uh, when you know, I landed in Hong Kong and you know, building a new uh, digital bank in Hong Kong from scratch is, is so fundamentally different from right. doing something like that you know, in the US or in the UK. And you know, we've been working with a fair few fintech players on their international you know, expansion plans, for example. And we've seen so many organizations fail when they try to expand internationally. And typically, I mean, there's a whole bunch of different reasons you know, for that, which we don't want to necessarily go into in today, but it also shows you that it is really, really hard. And again, I think given um, the funding environment that we live in today, you know, the ability for you to say, hey, I'm going to, we haven't you know, even reached full potential in our home markets, but you know, we're going to plant five, six, seven flags in a whole bunch of other countries. I think that environment has changed quite a bit. And the reality is that even if you look at you know, their whole markets, there's still so much room for growth. And we've obviously seen a fair few founders who had to go back to the drawing board in the past you know, 12 to 18 months because of the change in you know, the broader macroeconomic environment and in the funding landscape. And therefore, yeah, focus on the whole markets and then start to yeah, expand to what, what, I mean, also because of the fact that the fintech landscape has evolved so much in recent years, you're going to have to come up with something pretty special because even if you know, the first new banks are launched in the UK, yep. you know, when when they now try to expand to other parts of Europe, it's not as if you only have to go up against the big established incumbents. You're pretty much in every market out there, you'll have a bunch of new banks right, that are probably a couple of years ahead of you. So therefore, the need to think very carefully about what, what am I going to do that allows me to differentiate in this particular market but that's a key a key challenge for you know, many of the fintechs that we've been working with. You know, it's interesting. You know, the, the concept of fintech five years ago was a competing organization that was going to do digital better than traditional financial institutions, meet the needs of segments, do banking better, for lack of a better term. But as consumers' behaviors and expectations continue to shift, a lot of traditional financial institutions had partnered and have partnered with third-party providers to replicate some of fintech's best service offerings or best differentiations. How do fintech firms now differentiate their offerings going forward? Yes, so, I mean, building on my earlier points, I think the reality is that the, the incumbent players, of course, haven't been sitting still. Right? And I actually think that some of them have done a very decent job you know, playing catch up. And you know, I had a really interesting conversation with you know, one of the, the big European banks the other day. And yeah, they basically said, listen, we, we don't necessarily need to be the first to market. Let, let the neo banks be the first ones to launch new features, new functionality. As long as we are in a position to effectively copy that, I'm perfectly comfortable with that strategy. Now, that, that's one strategy, not necessarily one that I would recommend. But you know, we have seen you know, a, a fair few incumbent banks you know, go down you know, that route. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, what, what, what all of this effectively means is that because the landscape continues to evolve, you know, if you are a consumer-facing neobank, you know, for example, you need to work even harder to differentiate yourself in the current market. Right? Just having a, a sexy-looking app right, just isn't good enough anymore right, to, right. You know, to differentiate yourself. So therefore, the question is, you know, what is going to allow you to differentiate yourself in a relatively crowded and very, very competitive market in a funding environment that has changed significantly in the past you know, 12 to 18 months. And I do think that you know, when I look at the fintech sector more broadly, 
Um, and you know, when you look for ways that allow you as a company to differentiate in a market, you know, I, I'm not necessarily seeing an awful lot of companies that are very, very mission driven, right? So what do you stand for as a business? So to what extent are you just, yeah, building the modern version and slightly better version uh, yeah, of an incumbent blade that's been around for a couple of decades. Yeah. And yeah, you basically compete on your know, price or quality of customer service versus yeah, to what extent yeah, do you try to differentiate by just being a really, really mission-driven business? And you'll provide that clarity to your customers, whether that's on the consumer side or on the business side around what do you effectively stand for? And I also think there are some fundamental differences in terms of you know, where do you play as an organization? Now, you know, from an investment perspective, we've obviously seen a significant shift in the past couple of months from you know, B2C to B2B, where B2B is you know, suddenly a lot hotter you know, than, right. uh, than B2C. So I think a lot of it also depends on you know, where do you effectively play as an organization and therefore how do you differentiate yourself in a, in a, in a rather crowded market? You know, we, we talk about how quickly change is happening and probably nothing changed more quickly than the funding background of fintechs where VC firms, all of a sudden, the money all but dried up except for the biggest and most successful fintech firms. How do you see that playing out? I mean, if you work for Bain and you're investing in fintechs, how are you evaluating firms to see what their viability is going forward? And how do you see the market? You know, we talk about the traditional marketplace often saying, you know, how many banks will be in the future? Well, how many fintechs are there going to be? What, what's going to happen overall with the ability for even some of the bigger ones to scale to the point of making money and not relying on, you know, investment capital to stay alive? Yeah, uh, listen, I think the, the the fundamentals haven't necessarily changed. It's not as if, you know, if you look at yeah, investors today versus investors 12 months ago, that they suddenly look at a whole bunch of different metrics when they decide to invest in a particular company. And I think, yeah, some people might think that's the case. The reality is that that, that is definitely not the case. Now, to what extent you know, do we see you know, a bit more of a focus on to what extent you know, does this company have the ability to work towards sustainable profitability in the short term? Of course. Now, the reality, Jim, is that you, know, that you could have argued that that should have always been the case. Right. And I think you know, the, but it the reality- money. I mean, almost everything progressed forward at, at a point. Y yeah, let, let's, let's not forget that you know, we effectively went through you know, a period of basically 10 years of nonstop economic growth, well, where there was plenty of capital available, we had low interest rates. And I think, you know, if you look at the changes that we've witnessed in the broader macroeconomic environment in the past 12 to 18 months, also driven by, you know, factors that were effectively yeah, outside of our control, that of course has also played you know, a major role, and yeah, you know, that's one of several reasons why we've obviously seen a significant you know, drop in uh, the levels of funding you know in fintech. But I think the reality is that everyone got a little bit too excited at some point. Basically, anyone you know, could raise a fund you know, and invest in uh, you know, in fintech businesses. Yeah, there were a fair few investors as well who had never invested in financial services before, who suddenly also wanted to you know, get in and and uh, and want to invest in uh, in fintechs. And I think that that you know, created a bit of a distortion in in the market. And yeah, you know, also if you look at some of the valuations that we were seeing, you know, there's a fundamental difference between investing in the future growth of a company, you know, versus you know investing at levels that are just not necessarily realistic. So the fact that some of those valuations have come down to more realistic levels, 
Yeah, in a way, it's it's obviously painful to see a fair few people you know, losing their jobs, but the reality is that I think you know for the sector as a whole, and if you look at you know the longer term perspective, ultimately I think this is a good thing. Right? Are we are we seeing the same thing happen with uh, generative AI right now as happened in fintech, where where you know it's the next shiny object? There's a lot of money being put towards. A, a fairly good sized solution, but it's still narrow in the world of things. I mean, are we seeing the same thing duplicate itself that we saw back when money was cheap in the AI space right now? Um, I, I don't think so. I do think, I mean, having worked in financial services for quite some time, I mean, it doesn't happen that often that you know, a new piece of technology, and again, you could argue that AI has been around for 60 years, but I think you know, the, the development you know, that we've witnessed in the past you know, couple of months is so fundamentally different versus what we've witnessed in the past you know, right. couple of decades. And I do think that this is such a transformational piece of, uh, of technology that you know, I do believe has the potential you know, to fundamentally transform you know, the industry as a whole. And therefore, I am not surprised that from an investor perspective, we, we are seeing an awful lot of interest. Now, of course, you know, there's a few companies that have been dominating the headlines you know, in, uh, in recent months. But yeah, we've witnessed uh, the emergence of, I mean, pretty much on a weekly basis, we see new exciting companies you know, popping up. Yeah. Now, I think similar to you know, the conversation we had earlier about uh, about the fintech space, I do think you know, you'll see a fair bit of consolidation happening in the market whereby, yeah, just focusing on one individual use case, you know, to what extent is that addressable market large enough in order for you to build a sustainable business? Question mark. So I do think that you know, we will continue to see some really, really exciting companies popping up. Again, we see you know, uh, you know, quite a bit of a shift in terms of talent as well. You know, that's uh, you know, that's joining some of these organizations, and um, that's something that you know, I and we as a company, and also from an investment perspective, we are very, very excited about. But I do think there's a fundamental difference, right? And I do think uh, if you look at the investment that's flowing into generative AI today, you know, and how that money is being deployed, it's very, very different compared to, you know, the investment that was going into, um, you know, into fintech more broadly in recent years. So data security and privacy are growing concerns, uh, especially in the digital age and with governments getting more and more involved. How do you see fintech companies addressing these issues and building a greater trust for their customers. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, we've obviously seen uh, a fair few fintechs in you know in recent years, um, you know, struggle with issues around compliance, and you know, therefore, you know, suffering from uh, quite a bit of uh, of reputational uh, damage, and. I think to be perfectly honest, Jim, you know, there are organizations out there that you know, underinvested you know, in this area and therefore had to bolster their compliance function. And especially if you're, it doesn't necessarily matter if you're an early stage business or you know, a business that is a bit more, more established. You know, ultimately in this industry, it is all about trust. Right? And therefore, yeah. And again, this is such an obvious thing to say, but ultimately trust you really makes or breaks your business. And this yeah. applies to you know, consumer facing you know, fintechs and neobanks, but also if you're focusing on, on the B2B segment, you know, for example. And um, yeah, if you're a B2B fintech and you're serving a large incumbent bank that is already pretty risk averse, you know, the last thing that these organizations want to do is partner with an organization that might cause them some reputational damage oh, and be on the exactly. front page of the Financial Times you know, the following day. Yeah. So therefore, I think m making this 
a vital part of your organization, no matter you know, whether you're you know, which part of you know, the fintech sector you operate in. Again, it sounds so bloody obvious, but I do think that some organizations have, yeah, <laughs> haven't necessarily done a very good job at tackling this. But I do think that is changing, right? So making this front and center from day one, you know, making sure that you are investing, you know, in compliance and data security more broadly, you know, is is obviously absolutely vital. You know, if you want to be yeah, a successful business that is going to be around for the next couple of decades. When you when you look at governmental regulations across the globe, do you see governments getting too involved or not getting involved enough in the whole fintech sector? You know, we we always are feeling, at least in the states, we feel like the government, the regulators are fell behind, and now they're playing catch up, and sometimes overstep their bounds, and sometimes because trade groups force them to play that hand. Are government regulations a a threat or a strategic advantage to the fintech industry as you see it? Um, it's a great question. I I think it's probably a bit of both, right? And 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 let me explain why I think that's the case. I think yeah, here in the UK, for example, um, I think we've been very fortunate to have a set of you know fairly progressive regulators, and I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons why you know the UK has been you know one of the or London and yeah, obviously this applies to the rest of the UK as well, but London in particular has been one of the world's leading fintech hubs is is because of that. And I think it's you know it's therefore fair to say that we probably wouldn't have such a thriving fintech sector if it wasn't for regulators working proactively with the industry to sort of shape what regulation is is going to look like. And therefore, yeah, I'm also not surprised that various other regulators across the globe, you know, have sort of, you know, tried to copy what the UK yep. uh, have done, whether that's the issues of uh, you know, virtual banking licenses, for example, which of course we've now seen in Hong Kong and in Singapore and in various other parts of, uh, of the world, ultimately with the aim to you know, drive you know, more competition, but you know, also make it easier for your know, fintechs to, you know, to set up you know, their business. I think that the challenge for regulators um, yeah, in, in recent years has been, and again, you know, coming from someone who spent his whole career in financial services, I think the pace of change that we're seeing today is unlike anything that we've ever seen before. Yeah. And therefore, uh, as a regulator, trying to be on top of everything that's going on in this industry and all the, you know, the, the technological advances that we've witnessed, whether that's Web3 or generative AI or cloud or whatever that may be, I think we, we all need to admit that that's very, very challenging. And therefore, finding a balance you know, between you know, allowing innovation to flourish whilst protecting consumer rights, th- that tends to be quite hard. And I, I do believe that, yeah, if you take the US as an example, I think if, yeah, and again, if you take the crypto industry, I do think if the rules would have been clearer, then you know, some of these companies yeah, would be operational in the US and not necessarily somewhere else. But I do think that you know, the, the, the stance that many uh, regulators have taken in recent years where they are, you know, as I mentioned, proactively engaging with the industry, and it's not just you know, the regulator locks themselves in a room and yeah, 
three years later they come up with this piece of regulation that's completely misaligned you know i think taking more of a you know, again a progressive stance and also sort of doing this in phases where you know the first piece you know, might not necessarily be perfect but at least it provides some clarity to what you can and cannot do and again you know back to my earlier point about the fact that incumbents of course are very very risk averse in many of my conversations with incumbent banks at the moment when we talk about the topic of generative ai one of the concerns that consistently comes up is yeah, what what can we and what can we not do from a regulatory perspective? Yeah. And because that regulatory framework isn't necessarily there yet, I mean, it's it's obviously being worked on. But I think as long as the regulator provides clarity around you know what what this is going to look like, I think that will also lead to you know, more adoption and providing you know, both banks and fintechs more clarity around what is the art of the possible. Yeah. You know, let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So today I'm joined by Jeff Tyson, expert partner and global head of FinTech at Bain & Company. We've been discussing the opportunities and challenges facing FinTech firms during these very uncertain times. So Jeff, FinTech has the potential to enhance financial inclusion and bridge the gap for underserved populations. How can we ensure that the benefits of fintech really do reach everyone, including those in developing economies or developing segments? I mean, ultimately, if you look at you know, one of the, the the reasons why fintech exists today is to is to address you know, this particular issue, um, right? and and addressing you know those customer needs that are unmet, underserved, or overcharged. And I I do think that one of the benefits that we have witnessed you know in recent years is the ability you know to bring you know the the unbanked and underbanked even in you know developed countries like the US or the UK into that financial ecosystem. Right. And that that in itself of course has you know plenty of uh, of benefits. Now I think the reality is that you know, historically uh, a lot of incumbents would say well it is just not economically viable in order for us you know to serve the bottom end of the market but one of the reasons for that is you know the the, the cost to serve and cost of acquisition was so fundamentally high and therefore the question to me becomes well how how do you reduce that you know to make sure that you really you know, leverage all the modern technologies that exist today you know to reduce cost to income ratios and reduce the cost of running your your technology stack so i, I don't necessarily think that that should be an excuse not to serve that particular yep. segment of the market, yep. and this applies to you know to the consumer side, but it also applies to uh, to the small business side, for example, which remains you know, a part of the industry that is still fundamentally underserved. Yep. And therefore, I'm not surprised that we've obviously witnessed the emergence of so many exciting businesses in the SME lending space or you know, the SME neo banking space. You know, the likes of Oak North and Tide and you know, and Brax and you know, loads of other companies that I think are doing fundamentally well and you are also effectively stealing market share from you know, the large incumbents. But 
you know, to me, I think if you are an incumbent, you know, one of the questions is, okay, yes, you are seeing some of these neobanks effectively eating your lunch. H- how do you change that? And I think you know, the excuse, as I mentioned earlier, that it's just not profitable for us to go after that segment. Yeah. And again, maybe a regulator has a role to play here as well, because to me, that that should not be an excuse not to serve you know, the yep. bottom end of the market. Well, and, and sometimes it's based on legacy thoughts around things such as credit credit scores and credit yes. availability. You know, yep. WeBank does an amazing job of meeting all the market needs in in China. But part of that is because they do judgments so that everybody can get a small small loan, maybe just to buy a phone. And that allows them into the financial marketplace. But they're looking at credit in a completely different way. And they're also realizing that if they hit the masses, then they look at the masses as driving the risk criteria. They don't look at each individual customer and say, this person is not credit worthy. They simply are trying to find those customers that may go bad. You know, it's a little different than credit worthiness and a point of they're going to go bad because they're they're fraudulent. You know, if you hit everybody, then that risk gets distributed and you can make money. It's not going to be a ton of money on any one customer, but you make money as an organization. It's, a, it's interesting to see the way they look at the risk profiles and the ability to hit all markets. And and it's, we've got to look at that differently. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Jim. And and of course, the uh, you know, the, the response from many banks historically has been, well, yeah, we, this is how we've been doing this for the past you know, 20, 30 years. But yeah. again, you know, that that that's that's not an excuse, right? So looking at a fundamental rethink of your entire business model and operating model, and this is also that you know, the difference between you know, you take an existing analog your servers and you digitize that versus you're creating a fully a fully yes. digital service that's end to end, right? And again, just building building a shiny veneer on top of what you already have. And also I think, you know, this is where, you know, there's a, there's a phenomenal opportunity for fintechs to, to do exactly that, right? It's, it's to come up with alternative approaches, you know, to how things have been done, you know, for the past couple of decades to allow, you know, if you're serving a, if you're a B2B business and you're serving an incumbent bank, for example, not just to reduce cost, but also to provide that customer experience that is indeed, you know, 10x better and to bring these customers into, you know, the, the financial ecosystem, which of course, as you know, so many benefits for the broader economy as well. You know, if fintech collaborations and partnerships have really become increasingly common. In fact, it's probably the most exciting component of the fintech traditional banking space. What are some successful examples of collaboration between fintech startups and traditional financial institutions that you've seen? And how are these types of partnerships going to continue to drive innovation? Yeah, I, I love that question, uh, Jim, because I think Again, if you uh, if you rewind the clock yeah, about ten years or so, yeah, when we first you know, saw the emergence of you know, the first couple of neobanks, yeah, you know, for example, and yeah, you know, initially you know, the response from banks, of course, was well, yeah, either we're scared or we don't necessarily take these guys you know, seriously. And I think that the shift yeah you know, that we've witnessed towards uh, collaboration and, and partnerships on both sides, right? both yep. on the fintech side as well right. as on on the incumbent side, I think has been really really interesting to uh, to witness. Now, yeah, you know, I I could easily write a book yeah you know, on the, on this topic, having worked with 
Yes, um, I mean, again, yeah. having worked on both sides, but having worked with so many incumbent banks to you know, lead their innovation programs or establish your know, partnership functions or establish CVC arms, you know, for example. And you know, I don't think there's a, a single financial institution out there that you know, doesn't have a dedicated partnership team or doesn't necessarily have you know, a, a CVC arm you know, to really help you know, drive you know, their broader innovation uh, agenda as well. I think that the, the, the challenge you know, tends to be um, you know, a, a lack of clear ownership uh, or a lack of alignment with the business where you know, the partnership team or you know, the CVC arm or the innovation team is, comes up with a, a couple of things that you know, look really, really interesting, but is just not a key priority for the business. Yep. And therefore, you know, the question is, how do you go beyond these, you know, these endless proof of concepts where you're just pretty much wasting you know, a fintech's uh, fintech time? Right? And, and you know, this, um, you, know, this, uh, you just end up with this stupid innovation theater, your know, nonsense, as opposed to really focusing yeah. on your real, your real value creation. Now, I mean, a couple of examples, right? Again, here in the UK, I think, you know, organizations like NetWest have been really, really active you know, on on this front. You know, I really yeah. like the partnership that NetWest established with uh, Vadino, for example, uh, this European banking as a service player, you know, and really doubling down on building out, you know, their BAS and, you know, and, and embedded finance business, which I think is incredibly exciting. We've obviously seen, um, you know, the likes of Fifth Third, uh, you know, being pretty active you know, on this front, making the, the Rise acquisition, you know, a couple of weeks ago, which I think is incredibly exciting and, and also unlocks. I think one thing that that really excites me about that particular example is that um, I mean, for so many of our incumbent clients uh, across the globe, uh, Jim, their core business isn't necessarily growing. So one of the reasons why um, you know many incumbent clients are coming to us at the moment is you know, to explore new avenues for growth, or what, what's that engine two business that is going to stimulate new growth outside of your existing core uh, core business? And I think if you look at you know, what the likes of Fifth Third you know, have done, and, and really thinking carefully about how do we make an acquisition to really accelerate. You know, our ambitions in this space, because we've also seen you know, so many, uh, you know, so many acquisitions uh, that, yeah, just failed, right? Because you know, there wasn't a clear view on what do I want this business to be when it grows up, and how do I successfully integrate this organization? Or, and again, yeah, we can have a whole separate conversation about the challenges of doing fintech M and A, because we, we we've seen um, a significant number of incumbent banks coming to us, you know, in the past twelve to eighteen months. You know, to say, listen, you know, we we really want to uh, accelerate our fintech M and A agenda. Um, obviously, the valuations have come yeah have come crashing down, and therefore a lot of these your know, companies have suddenly become really really right. interesting acquisition targets. But then you know, successfully you know, integrating that and dealing with the two different cultures. Again, we've seen so many failed examples you know in the uh, in this space. But the fact that yeah, you know, every organization is now actively looking at yeah, how can we leverage. Yeah, the fintech ecosystem out there to really, really accelerate our broader innovation agenda, to me is something, and that that typically is 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 being done top down. Right? So a lot of the conversations we're having about these types of topics, the CEO board level discussions, you know, as opposed to head of innovation discussions, and to me that that also shows you that you know, something is really changing and you know CEOs understand the value that these organizations can bring you know to um you know to that particular incumbent organization. It is so interesting to bring up Fifth Third because I worked with Fifth Third in a previous life and I don't think they're not only in a very conservative city in Cincinnati, Ohio, but they're they were the conservative of conservative banks. They had a really um unique credit card 
funding um, organization, a, a very innovative group, but they used old technology. But that organization for years was led by people that, that I don't think really thought in an innovative way or in a transformative way. And they have changed as quickly as any organization I've seen. Um, you know, another one in Ohio is Huntington Bank, which I think has done well as well. But it is interesting when you bring up Fifth Third Bank because you mentioned it throughout your last discussion that it really takes leadership to completely rethink what that bank is going to be and how it will grow. And so that type of partnership, that type of collaboration can be done. And as the organization overall transforms internally, the culture transforms, it does make for the platform for success. But as you said, it really does start at the top and it did at Fifth Third. So it's very interesting. So, you know, when you look at the advancements and disruptions in the fintech business model, what do you see coming out of generative AI and chat GPT and all the elements that we're looking at now? How do you see the fintech business model maybe changing a bit? Yeah, I think um, good old Matt Harris from Bing Capital wrote this really interesting article back in 2019, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so he published an article in Forbes, which basically talked about you know, wh why fintech is effectively d the fourth you know, business model. Right? So you, know, you had you know, the internet, then you had cloud, and then you had mobile. And you know, this is effectively the fourth major uh, platform uh, technology. Right. And, and fintech is effectively becoming a business model um, you know, in, in its own uh, in its own right, which I think is is a great way to describe you know, what's happening you know, in the industry at the moment, particularly around your know, embedded finance. Um, now, you know, what I what I find quite interesting is it wasn't that long ago where uh, you know, when everyone was talking about the the great unbundling. Well, we all remember these you know, these CB insights. Oh, the charts, uh, the right? visuals, yeah. It, it, Exactly right, and, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, fintech was going to was causing the, the great unbundling in financial services. I think yeah, we've all come to the conclusion now that yeah, some of these businesses are just you know too small to effectively be a standalone your know, business that you know, will be sustainable for you know the next couple of decades, and therefore yeah, I think we're seeing a bit of rebundling you know that is effectively happening now. Mm -hmm. I mean, on on your point about generative AI, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's something that yeah, that I'm incredibly excited about. I do think that, you know, this is something that is very, very different, you know, versus, yeah, all the other technologies that, yeah, that we've seen. Even, I mean, I was chatting to a journalist the other day and, and she asked me, isn't this just like the new, you know, the new crypto, or the new Web3, and isn't it just, just another bubble? And I think one of the fundamental differences is the application of generative AI to effectively every part you know, of the financial services industry. You know, whether that's your back office, front office, compliance, you know, uh, fraud and analytics, customer service, relationship management, the list goes on and on and on. And yeah, I could easily give you 257 potential use cases you know, across your know, different parts of financial services. I think the the the, the challenge, yeah, as we were discussing earlier, ultimately is is adoption, right? And and you know, trying to overcome you know the uh, you know this risk averse your view that you know, tends to exist in, you know, in many large incumbent organizations. But I do believe that it is very, very different. It is incredibly exciting. You know, it definitely has the potential to fundamentally change you know, the industry. 
But yeah, what I and yeah, we talked about this on stage in twenty 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 as well, uh, together with uh, uh, with City and ABN Emro and and how those you know, two of the, the largest financial institutions in the world have you know, have have tried to tackle this. And I think yeah, you know, some people think that you know this is something quite fundamentally you know, new and and yeah, uh, some of these organizations have only started to play around with AI in in you know, in the past couple of months. Yeah, you know, that of course is not the case. I mean, you know, many right. of these organizations have had you know, dedicated you know, data science teams, uh, data science teams, and you know, some really really clever you know, AI experts. You know, that uh, yeah, and have been building up centers of excellence for years. Right, but you know, the the ability for every single individual to play around with this, that in itself is a massive game changer. And that again, of course, is one of the fundamental differences between your know, Web3, for example, and generative AI. And the fact that, yeah, I think what's quite interesting, Jim, is that we, um, so we announced an alliance with OpenAI back in February. We've been working with the guys for for quite some time. And um, you know, since the announcement, uh, it just went, Gangbusters, basically, where you know, every single organ, <laughs> every single organization wants to understand well, what does this mean for my organization? Right? What, what, what are the opportunities that right. generative AI uh, you know, provides? How do I you know, prioritize which case, which use cases to work on first? Um, how does this affect you know, our existing your know, risk and governance and compliance uh, your know, models, uh, for example? Uh, what capabilities are required in order for me to benefit from you know, all these 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 amazing things that? That your generative AI has to offer and the potential that this provides you know, to to the organization. Um, so that's been uh, that's been incredibly interesting you know, for us. But a lot of for, even for the most established organizations, it's still effectively baby steps. And again, you know, you don't want to be on the front page of the Financial Times because something went horribly wrong. And you know, in recent right. years, we've we of course have witnessed you know, some examples of organizations that you've know, got their fingers burned. But again, you're know, back to the point about regulation, providing a clear regulatory environment will also you know, help the industry as a whole you know, to really drive adoption you know, on a on a larger scale. You know, it, it's interesting when you look at that, as you said, you know, everybody's reached out to you to go, what should I do as opposed to here's my why, here's what we're moving towards. Where do we apply generative AI or AI in that area? And, you know, you also mentioned the, the biggest difference is the democratization of the value of this is going to go across the organization as opposed to being siloed for report purposes or analytic purposes. It's really the outward facing um, component of this that's going to be the most exciting. So, you know, we've gone through a lot of them, but fintech startups obviously are facing more challenges than ever before, such as funding, scalability, regulatory compliance, risk. What advice would you give to an aspiring fintech entrepreneur wanting to navigate these hurdles and maybe get the ear of uh, Bain going forward? Yeah, I mean, listen, to me, uh, this is a really, really interesting you know, test case for many organizations. And again, yeah, as we discussed before, going from 10 years of nonstop economic growth where you know, raising capital was, it wasn't easy, but it was definitely easier versus you know, the, the world that we live in, uh, that right. we live in today. And uh, again, because of the fact that we work with you know, pretty much all of the world's leading investors, it's not as if suddenly the you know, the appetite you know, to you know, invest in fintech has fundamentally changed. Well, I think you know as a as a founder, and I've spent an awful lot of time with you know with uh, with, with many fintech founders across the globe. You know in the past twelve to eighteen months, you know, and obviously before that uh, as well. But 
you know, to effectively go back to the drawing board. And the reality, uh, uh, Jim, is that I do think we'll see some consolidation happening in the market. I do think that, yeah, in the next couple of years, you will start to separate the real winners you know, from the losers you know, in, in this space. And again, you know, that provides attractive M&A you know, opportunities, uh, both for incumbents as well as other fintechs to really accelerate you know, their yep. growth. But to me, I think you know, it's important to, uh, you know, to take a step back you know, as a founder and say, okay, to what extent do we need to change tactics? To what extent do we need to effectively go back you know, to the drawing board? And it could just be a matter of, listen, you know, instead of you know, pursuing hyper growth at all costs, just because we can, well, and going for world domination, you know, there's still so much room for growth you know, in the existing market or markets in which we operate. You know, and to what extent, you know, I think an important question to ask you know, if you're a founder as well is, you know, to what extent, if I look at the team that you have today versus your, your ambition you know, to you know, take the business wherever you want to take it to in the next you know, three, four, five years, to what extent you know, do I feel that I have the team that is going to you know, successfully get to that your know, five-year vision? And you know, we talked about you know, your compliance function, for example, but I think it's important to look at what other capabilities are required you know, in order for me to continue to, you know, to grow the business. And also make sure you focus on the fundamentals. Right. Make sure that yeah. you, know, you focus on, yeah. Uh, again, given the fact that uh, yeah, there's such an increased focus on working towards sustainable profitability, to what extent are you going after those segments in the market where you know, there is real, real potential, you know, for you to be a leading player in that space? Right? And I think, yeah, yeah, as a as a as an entrepreneur, right, you don't necessarily settle to be your know, number five or number six in the market. But I also think having a a clear ambition, you know, being able to communicate that clearly to the rest of your team. And back to my point about being a real, you know, mission driven business, you know, not just to the outside world, but also to your team. And obviously, you know, it's been, you know, we've gone through significant levels of of turmoil. And therefore, I think as a CEO or as a, you know, as a founder, it's even more important today, you know, to have that dialogue with your team and make sure that you know, your team still believes in you know, the mission of the company. Yeah. So, Jeff, we could go on for hours, honestly, because there's so much going on in the marketplace, but you're also at the epicenter of where a lot of this is happening and and why you're such a, a great person to follow. But given that, how do people follow you? How do people learn more about your insights and what Bain is doing in the fintech space? Um, yeah, you can. Uh, I mean, the best thing to do is you know, follow me on uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, you, know, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Tyson as well. Uh, we publish a lot of your know, great content on uh, on Bain.com. Uh, listen to Deciphered, uh, you know, our own fintech podcast. Uh, we've had some phenomenal guests you know, on the show. Yeah. We've got some really exciting topics you know, coming up in the next uh, in the next couple of months as well. So that's uh, that's another way to uh, you know, to stay on top of you know, all the exciting work that we're doing in this space. You know, it's interesting, you and I benefit from the fact that the marketplace isn't getting any less, less interesting. Um, there's no lack of content to be written about, to be understood, to take another take at, because it, not only are the topics changing, but even the topics that have been here for a while, they're evolving so quickly. And every time we take our eye off the ball, something new happens that we weren't quite expecting. So Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Jim. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Bank and Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's interview, please take some time to give our show a five-star rating. 
Also, be sure to catch the articles I'm writing for the financial brand and check out our research we're doing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslitz, audio engineer, Gray Sienna Longfellow, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, fintech firms must go beyond providing a great digital solution. They must answer an evolving marketplace need. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.